This interview was recorded in February 2020, just a few weeks before COVID-19 effectively shut down the theater community and indefinitely postponed the Blue Barn Theater's production of Marjorie Prime, which was to be directed by Susan Bayer Collins. You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Susan Bayer Collins has worked in theater, television, and radio in Omaha, Atlanta, and New York City. After appearing for three years in a cable television show for children at Turner Broadcasting Corporation in Atlanta, she moved to Omaha in 1983, and it has been her home ever since. In 1987, Susie was hired by the Omaha Community Playhouse and served for 28 years as Associate Artistic Director. During that time, she directed and acted in numerous plays and musicals, which include The Secret Garden, The Importance of Being Earnest, Carousel, Ragtime, Not About Nightingales, Hairspray, and Les Miserables as a director, and The Mystery of Irma Vep, Sweeney Todd, Company, and August Osage County as an actor. Mostly retired from the Playhouse since 2014, Susie continues to work as a freelance theater artist. Her recent directing credits include Superior Donuts at the Omaha Community Playhouse in 2017, Much Ado About Nothing for Nebraska Shakespeare in 2018, and Sweat in 2019 for the Playhouse. As a performer, she appeared in Our Town and Circle Mirror Transformation at the Blue Barn Theater and played the title role in Ellen Struve's play, Prince Max's Truly Awful Trip to the Desolate Interior for a Great Plains Theater Conference Playfest event. An amateur linguist at heart, Susie serves as dialect coach for a wide variety of professional, community, and high school productions in the Omaha area. In addition to a number of awards received for her work as a director and actor, Susie was the recipient of the Omaha Theater Arts Guild Lifetime Achievement Award in 2010 and the Arts and Entertainment Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016. In 2014, she received the Nebraska State Governor's Artist of the Year Award jointly with her longtime associate, Carl Beck. In 2019, she was presented with the Great Plains Theater Conference's McDowell Award for her work in the Omaha theater community. Susie is currently directing the play Marjorie Prime for the Blue Barn Theater, which will open March 19th of this year. Susie Bear Collins, welcome to the Green Room. Thank you, Dana. I'm such a fan. I'm so <laughs> excited to be here. Thanks uh, for asking me. Uh, you know, you are one of the most requested guests. I've had more than one person say to me, when are you going to have Susie on? And I'm like, oh, she is on my list. She's on my list. Oh, so great. I'm, I'm so happy our, to be here. I'm glad our schedules were able to, to work out on yeah, this me too. Friday night. 
I don't believe this interview is going to be an hour. I believe <laughs> I believe people want to to really dive into you and your life and your theater achievements, not only here, but elsewhere. So I kind of view. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I kind of view this as like a two act play. Ooh, so fun. So this will be act one. Let us start with where you were born. I was born in Detroit, Michigan, Henry Ford Hospital. My dad worked for the VA administration. He was a physician. He worked at a hospital. And for the first 13 years of my life, that's where I lived. And where did you go to grade school? You know, I think it was called Quant Elementary. It was a very long time ago. And, um, and then we moved into a new school called Rogers Elementary because I was a baby boomer. And there were way too many grade school kids and they didn't have enough schools. Mm. So we were packed in there. We would sometimes, sometimes there would be kindergarten through eighth grade in a grade school because the junior highs and the high schools didn't have room for them. So I was, you know, king of the mountain in a seventh grade grade school Mm -hmm. um, experience. And that was fun. How many siblings do you have? I had two sisters. Okay. I have an older sister and a younger sister and our younger sister, Melissa, we recently lost her. Mm -hmm. And she did theater. Now, does your older sister also do theater? No, but you know, she was in public television for many years and she did programming for public TV and, you know, it kind of all bleeds together in (laughs) one big world of arts. Our mother was, uh, a graduate of Northwestern in speech and drama. And, you know, it was a different time then. She ended up getting married and having kids and never really pursued her career, although she had a chance to go to Yale School of Drama and the war happened and she went into the Navy and she met my dad. And Which is a a good thing. Which is a great thing. (laughs) But I think, you know. Did she ever do any theater, like community theater or anything like that? Finally, when we were a lot older, Mm -hmm. she did one show at a community theater and my dad didn't like it and she stopped doing it. Wow. I mean, very different time, you Mm -hmm. know. And so she was so excited when my little sister and I started doing plays and and that was, was it, a cool thing. Was it the influence of, of your mom? You know, I never felt like she was breathing down my throat. Somehow she made it feel like I came up with this all on my own. And I'm sure that's not true because we grew up in a household. My dad was a hi-fi nut, mm. you know, high fidelity recordings and long playing records were a big deal. And so our family had Fiddler on the Roof and The Music Man and Oklahoma and My Fair Lady. And we played them ad infinitum. My dad would wake us up in the morning, you know, just with the loudest he could play, 76 trombones. That was our alarm clock at our house. So we we knew about musical theater just from listening to it, not so much going to it very much, but we were big fans. When we were little girls, we would go down to the basement And we loved this recording by Mary Martin of Peter Pan based on the television broadcast, right? And it's this glorious musical. And so there's three little girls and we're dressed in our tights and we get our costume pieces on. And my older sister was bigger. And so she was always Peter because there was no other choice. (laughs) And I got to be Captain Hook and Wendy. (laughs) And our little, who's four years younger, you know, she was stuck being everybody else like Nana. The dog. And (laughs) so, you know, we would act that out and it was just the most fun thing. And we would do that to South Pacific. We would do that to other shows. You know, it was kind of doomed 
<laughs> I remember when it was time for me to declare a, a major at school at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. And I told my dad I wanted to major in theater. And he went, well, what else would you do? <laughs> I mean, it was kind of a compliment, but I, I'm not really sure it was. <laughs> yeah. When you were in, in grade school, did they do any school plays? Yeah. They combined with the high school, I think, with a production of Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. You know, the opera? I, I do. I actually stage managed it. Oh, how wonderful. For Opera Omaha. We went oh, out on tour. Oh, of course. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Mm-hmm. I just thought as, you know, kind of an important person in that grade school that I would certainly get cast as Gretel. And I really wanted it. And I went to these auditions and I just read my hiney off, you know, for this part or sang it. And then they, you know, right before I left, they asked me if I'd read The Witch. And I was so insulted. I was like, how old were you? What? Um, Maybe 12. Okay. I guess. And so I, I read it not wanting it. So I read it kind of like nibble, nibble at my house. And I wasn't giving it anything. And my little sister, Melissa, got Gretel. And I was the witch's friend. (laughs) And I'll never forget that lesson. You know, it's like somebody tell you to read the witch. Are you kidding me? Right. I blew it. Yeah. (laughs) I really blew it. Uh, We've all had those moments. Yeah. We've all had those moments where we, where we wanted something and didn't get it or thought we were better in something or, you know. Right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Were you in Detroit when you went to high school? No. Okay. So, so how did you end up from Detroit to where'd you move after Detroit here? Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. Then Beckley, West Virginia, then Lincoln, Nebraska. My dad was being groomed to be an administrator at this hospital. He was a doctor. So they sent him to Cincinnati for this training. So we're in Cincinnati and I'm moving as a seventh grader in a brand new school, in a brand new house. And we're not there very long before he gets an assignment for his first administrative position at a new hospital in Beckley, West Virginia. So we're maybe 18 months in Cincinnati. And it was, you know, I didn't know anybody. It was very isolating time. So I remember hanging out in my room a lot and playing a lot of Beatles records and music theater records. And we kind of had to make our own fun. There wasn't a real social life for me. Mm -hmm. It felt like it was hard to get into those groups at school and I didn't have theater to help me open the door. Right. So it was kind of lonely. And then we moved to Beckley, West Virginia, which at the time was highly impoverished. And And where is that in relation to somewhere I would know in West Virginia? Beckley, Charleston, maybe it was 60 miles like South. I'm going to, somebody's going to look at a map and go, you know, nothing. (laughs) Every time we moved to places like this, we mostly lived on the grounds of the hospital. There was housing like there would be for military families. Yeah. So I grew up in a big brick duplex in Detroit on the grounds of a hospital, which we felt like was our playground. You know, we could ride our bikes all through these parking lots and our front field would freeze in the winter and we'd go ice skating on the field. And it was just this giant campus and there were ramps everywhere because it's a hospital. And so roller skating was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So we moved to Cincinnati and then we moved to Beckley and then my dad had some health issues and there's something about being absolutely right for a job. And somebody says, I think you need to be in charge. And 
there was a book out one time called The Peter Principle that said you can get promoted past what you should be doing. And making him an administrator was a big mistake. He was a doctor. He couldn't doctor anymore. He, he was pushing paper and hiring and firing and he hated it. And so he requested to be transferred and he went back to being a doctor and he asked to be transferred to Lincoln, Nebraska, which was not far from Omaha, where his mother was there and she was having some health issues. And so that brought us to Nebraska. And I went to East High as a junior. My older sister went to East High in a brand new school as a senior. That had to have been really tough. Very hard. I think the most definitive thing for me as a kid was there was a summer when I was in seventh grade. We were still in Detroit and my mother thought it was really important. And I'm so grateful for it now. But she wanted me to go to summer school during junior high after seventh grade, I think, and take typing because she said this will be a very important thing. I was like, oh. And she did me a favor, and I don't remember that I asked for it, but she signed me up for a summer acting class. And the acting class was that everybody that wanted to take it was going to try out for a play, and they were going to construct the set, and they were going to put the play on, and that was the class. And I didn't really know much about it, except I remember going to the audition, and you'd kind of sit on your butt in the hallway under the lockers. And they'd call us in one at a time. And the play was called Beanie's Private Eye. Stellar. Great. And the, the first scene is what they wanted us to read. And this older sister has a little brother named Beanie. And he's snooping on her and he's spying on her. And it's driving her crazy. And the first line of the play, she storms into the house. She slams the door and she says, Mother, you simply have to do something about Beanie. And I was sitting out there and they called my name and I don't, I don't remember that I thought about it very much, but I just opened the door to the classroom where the audition was and I slammed the door and I walked in and I said, mother, you simply have to do something about Beanie. So you did your audition just like, just, yeah, I just did that. Yeah. And I, I don't really, I don't remember thinking, oh, this'll be good. Right. It's just kind of maybe how I thought it was supposed to go. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But they gave me the part and I can remember going to a rehearsal and there was like a sofa and a chair and I, I came in the door and I was really good at slamming the door and saying my line. And then I sat down and my mother started talking and I got kind of freaked out. And I remember going home and talking to my mom and said, I, I don't, what do you do when someone else talks? I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And, and she started talking to me and she said, now, what are you doing right now? After she said a few things to me and I said, I'm looking at you, right? And if I say something that you agree with, do you kind of take that in? Is there an expression that comes on your face? And so she's talking to me. And for about a half an hour, I finally went away understanding about active listening. Mm. And it was like. What? The biggest lesson I ever think I ever had. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a big memory. You know, it's, it's funny. <laughs> I shouldn't bring this story up, but I'm going to bring this story oh, up. Goody. So, because it has to deal with active listening. I had the opportunity back in 2006, 2005 to do a show in New York. Ooh. Like off, 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 off Broadway. And that was my first experience in New York. And I was working with. New York actors. Mm -hmm. And there was a scene where the gentleman who was playing the king had like 
it was basically his scene and I basically stood there and listened to him and reacted and, and mm-hmm. all of those things. And he wanted to rehearse and I could understand that. It was like a five minute scene. He's got all the lines. So I'm like, yeah, I'll, I'll rehearse with you. And so we were, we were rehearsing and I'm doing my thing and listening and <laughs> he gets done. And literally he says to me, you're really, really good at that. Did you take a class in that? <laughs> and I went, what? <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. And that went over his head because he repeated it. And, and then I'm like, <laughs> I don't think Hello. And I said no and came to find out that there were actually people in New York at, at that time who who taught active listening classes. And I'm like, somebody's getting screwed out of right. their money. No kidding. So I'm like, that's just kind of normally how we do things in everyday life. Mm hmm. I say that because I think it's great how your mom just, you know, made you think through it. Right. Because Uh, it was, this is about me, isn't it? I'm on the stage. I'm the person. I, you know, and back then it takes you a long time to have that realization that the world isn't revolving around you. You know, I used to have this idea that there were all these little cardboard cutouts. And when I wasn't looking they just kind of went away and then they'd pop back up and be there for me, you know? So to get that realization that, I don't know, I'm still learning that lesson. I'm not done learning that. It comes and goes, you know what I mean? But it's, it's important. And it, that was, that was pivotal for me. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I was in high school, you know, one thing about knowing a new kid at a high school was at least the high school was brand new. They had just built East high school. So there were kids coming from other high schools in the area so being new wasn't quite so, you know, being, it wasn't quite so isolating maybe. Mm-hmm. And so we got to name the team, you know, because it didn't have a team yet. And so we were the Spartans and the drama club was the Dionysians. And I did a one act, I remember, and they hadn't quite developed the music departments to really put on a musical. So it wasn't until I was a senior that I did Oliver and I played Mrs. Sourberry. And I remember getting laughs for the first time. I mean, really doing something, kind of understanding what the character is and doing something and having it produce a laugh and, you know, kind of being doomed after that. When did you decide that theater was going to be your major, that that's what you were going to pursue in college? Mm -hmm. It must have been, it must have been high school. And right after high school, I spent a summer with a brilliant soft sculpture puppet artist named uh, Lee Ridge, who lived in Lincoln. She was Lynn Ridge's mother-in-law. Lynn Ridge, who was an amazing costume designer at the Omaha Playhouse for many years and did lots of projects all over Omaha. That, that, I was very involved with that. And I was involved in some summer projects with a, a man who had been at the University of Nebraska Lincoln Theater Department named Andy Backer. He was a huge influence on me. I can, I can list the names of, oddly, they're all men in my life who have been pivotal influences, who think I can do something and have encouraged me to move to, a, to try something or to direct or to write something or, you know, and he was one of them. He was maybe the first one. What is it about theater that draws you in? 
I know that seems like a, a weird, it seems oh, like no, a weird question, but, but it's, uh, and, and I don't know if you can quantify it. I don't know if you were to turn around and ask me that, if I could sit here on a moment's notice and say, I just know that, uh, well, and I guess this would be, I guess this would be my example. I had done like speech in grade school and I had a, a theater Linda, where's Vicky? Do you, you? I know that name. Yeah. yeah. So Linda was my eighth grade speech teacher and uh, she did stuff at the playhouse. And then she was tragically uh, murdered, actually, uh, after a, it was a rehearsal at the playhouse. Oh, OK. And oh, uh, my God. Yeah. And and had was in the parking lot of her apartment complex and was robbed and fought him and, and ended up dying. But she really was a big influence on me as far as like speech and encouraging, encouraging the energy, I guess I had. Mm-hmm. And then I had done it a little bit in high school, but it really, it, it, it wasn't until I got to college and I had actually had auditioned and had been cast in a Christmas Carol of all things that it was just the comfort level of the people, you know? And I don't know if it was the term is tribe, you know, and it was like, right. there was a common bond. There was, was. Yeah. and it was like, it, it, you couldn't say what it was, mm-hmm. but it was just, it was one of those things that was like, well, I always kind of felt like I was a little off. These people seem a little off <laughs> and I just feel like I fit right in. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, so I, you know, it, but it's hard to, it's hard to quantify yeah. what, what it is, but yeah. that, that draws someone right. to it. Right. Well, the first thing that came to my mind is that I was very shy and being in a role allowed me to be somebody else, somebody else. And that was kind of life-saving for me. I don't think I could have told you, I know this is kind of weird for me to say right now, but I, I didn't even know that I couldn't have told you that I had a personality, but I had all these things that I would read something or I would, you know, my parents sometimes bought spoken records. And so there was this gorgeous long playing record set of Julie Harris reading all the poetry of Emily Dickinson. And I would sit in my bedroom and just listen to her and emulate her in a way I heard a fly buzz when I died, you know, I would just, and I memorized some of it. And it was so much fun that later I got to direct Phyllis Stoneman in uh, the Bell of Amherst, which is about Emily Dickinson. But I think it's that I got to, I got to live in somebody else and I, and it, it kept me from having to be myself. And that was hard for me back then. It took me a long time to kind of get comfortable with, with me. I think I could fool a lot of people because I could be funny. And I think growing up in my household, my dad had some really strong addiction issues. And um, I was sort of the person that everybody would kind of pull together as a family and go see in a play or, uh, you know, I could be funny in, at times and find, you know, and I agree about the tribe thing mm-hmm. because as soon as I found that group at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and it was sort of a a halcyon time for that particular theater department. There was some great acting teacher, professor, directors, William Morgan, Mm -hmm. Dallas Williams. And, um, names that, well, Dallas, Dallas obviously had passed away, but I, when I got there, but, 
but uh, Dr. Morgan was still around oh. and, and he would show up at the theater department because that's where my degree is from is Lincoln. Oh, great. And Dr. Morgan would, would show up every now and then and be like, ah, it's one of the, yeah. one of the greats. Yeah. But I would have, you know, <laughs> he scared me so much when we were in college. I mean, he just terrified me. And I had to do an acting final for one of his classes. He would have these acting classes and each semester he'd pick an acting style. So it was neoclassicism and it's like Phaedra. And I mean, I don't to this day understand this form of performance or theater. I don't profess to, but I had some Beatrice monologue thing. And I'm doing my final and I'm standing in front of the classroom spouting this neoclassic drama stuff. And from the back of the room, I hear this. We're leading with our head. Leading like a chicken. We're leading with. Thank you, Dr. Morgan. I think I'll sit down now. But, you know, sometimes he was a little humiliating. That's the worst story that I experienced with him, <laughs> but he taught me so much and I, I, and he cast me often and he cast me in roles that were very challenging. And I watched him work with other actors and you do, you know, I think I was at a stage, at least by the time of my second year there, I could look around me and sort of learn from some of these amazing grad students and, and people that were there. That was, that was great. And I got into the summer rep. I did six seasons of Nebraska repertory. I was in the third season was my first year. And then it wasn't quite chronological, but that was some of the greatest training I ever had. And I think, you know, I didn't graduate. I left school. I followed an incredible Svengali director friend to Charlottesville, Virginia, to be in a dinner theater. And the whole thing is a crisis in a teapot. I mean, it's just the biggest mess of, of a series of events that you can imagine. But we rehearsed in this dinner theater. We were rehearsing 10 Little Indians. It was 1973. And we were in Charlottesville, Virginia. He was about to go to school for his master's at the University of Virginia. And this was going to be his part-time job. And he was going to bring us all to be in this play. And we were like, yeah. And I don't know why my parents let me go. <laughs> I really don't. But Carl Beck was one of the people that followed him and um, several other friends. And we get there and it's all very exciting. And we live above the theater in like dorm rooms. So this is our world. And we go downstairs and we eat meals together and we rehearse this play. But we didn't realize that the theater was owned by Mr. Cody of Cody Perfumes, lot of millionaires in this area. They were all raising their racehorses and the grazing was perfect in Albemarle County, Virginia. And Mr. Cody had given over several of his properties to be managed by his business manager who had neglected to pay back taxes on the dinner theater in the last 15 years. Oh. So while we were there, the theater was seized by the IRS. <laughs> <clears throat> And at one point before we were kicked out, we were still trying to rehearse this ding dong play. And the business manager came in and he held us all at gunpoint. <gasps> I, I know it's just hilarious, but I mean, you're going, I can't believe this is happening. And Dr. Morgan he really held you at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Dr. Morgan, my acting teacher says in the corner of my head, 
Use what's happening. Think of what you're doing. You'll use it later on stage. You know, <laughs> that's the story of my life is that little voice in my head that's all in emotional moments. It's always saying, use it. What, what are you doing? Oh, that's interesting. You just got terrible news and you're hyperventilating. Use that on stage. It's ruined my life, but it, no, it's great. <laughs> anyway, he held us at gunpoint, gave the gun to his partner who kept us at gunpoint while he went upstairs to steal the books that could incriminate him, the accounting books or whatever from the, from the theater. And then he also stole the light board and he stole the sound equipment so that we couldn't open the show. And then the IRS came and seized the whole place and we were out on our ears. And the first job we got, for some reason, we felt like we needed to stick together. (laughs) We were idiots. So the first job we got, it was at a nail polish factory on a nail polish conveyor belt. So, oh, so you all went together. Yeah. Okay. Because it was, you know, I'm sure it didn't pay well at all, but it was at least something and we could still be together, our little group. Well, it's because you didn't have closure. Right. I mean, I mean, in all honesty, you didn't have closure. That's right. Because you were all rehearsing together and the closure is doing the show and you never did. So we were supposed to do it for money and every single one of our checks bounced. Right. Yeah. We should have seen the writing on the wall. So we're writing home for money from parents and people are taking pity on us and putting us up wherever they could. And for a while we're living, you know, in different homes And then we all found this abandoned house that we'd been given permission to live in, but there was no heat or running water. So it was getting to be October. And eventually we all found jobs. I got a job in a restaurant and the guy at the restaurant was kind of a fan of performance and he was sort of an entrepreneur. And we started a cabaret act in this restaurant in Charlottesville, Virginia on Sunday nights. And after a while, all these millionaires were thinking we were sort of cute. And they came every Sunday and they dropped like 500 bucks on the table. And we moved into apartments and we started having a life. I think we ended up going back and doing the rep again after that. I went back to the rep after that. But yeah, crazy. That was wild. And it was during that time. I don't regret this decision. But it was during that time that one of those millionaires, champion spark plugs guy and his wife were very faithful patrons of this cabaret show where we would wait tables and we'd perform and we'd sing songs. And, you know, you can imagine it was probably pretty lame, but we had a good time. And this guy and his wife pulled me aside and they said, we would like to invest in you. We would like you to go study somewhere that you think you would benefit from and we would put you up for two years and we would pay your living expenses, Susie. And I was like, oh, I, like you said about the tribe, it was like, I don't, I can't, I can't leave all these people that I know. And what do I owe you Right. if I do that? And it was very confusing. And I said, no, thank you. But that was always the road less taken, you know, the road not taken. Sure. Patrons. Who knew? Yeah. They existed. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Weird follow-up question because weird things pop into my head. Yeah. I'm jumping all over too. Did you ever do a production of 10 Little Indians? No. Okay. No. So that's still out there for you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We should do that together. We should. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I know that's a weird question, but it's like, 
you never had a chance to no, revisit that. That's hanging there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You went back then and did the, you did the rep again. Mm-hmm. How many shows, you said it was six seasons. Were you involved in every show during those six seasons? Or? Most of the time. I think there was a year where I wasn't in one of the shows. Maybe there were two, but I, I got to do some great roles. You know, I was 21 years old the first time I played Joanne and company. Um, I was Kate in Taming of the Shrew. I was Helena in All's Well That Ends Well. I was Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream. I was in this really, really great production of Macbeth that was directed by a man who just recently gave over Flatwater Shakespeare. He was the artistic director for many years, Bob Hall. And, uh, he directed my first year of the rep. He directed this really important to all of us production of Oh, What a Lovely War, which was a a musical with music from World War One that was based on the work of Joan Littlewood. I think that's her name. She had a workshop and they created this show and it was all during Vietnam, of course, but it was a, was sort of a, a mirror to what happens when men go to war. And it was all told by these sort of clowns, this very playful musical. And we just felt so important and meaningful. And that show kind of, you know, how a show can do that, you know, for years, you're still kind of bound together from that experience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those things happened for me at the rep quite a bit. I never had that time in high school where you have friends for life Mm -hmm. from high school. Mm -hmm. So going to a high school reunion, which I've done a couple of times is okay, but they really weren't my friends that are my lifelong friends, Right. but it was the university theater department. Mm -hmm where that started for me. Yeah. We're still very close. Uh Where did the path take you next? I think Carl and I made a decision that we wanted to go to New York. And so we went back, we tucked our tails between our legs and we each went back to our, I'm talking about Carl Beck, Mm -hmm. who oddly, wonderfully, we have this very, very long association with each other. And I went back to Omaha. And he went to Oklahoma City where his family was. And we both got jobs. I think I worked at Ben Simon's over Christmas. You know, I was selling men's clothes. What the hell do I know? But our, our, our purpose was to make money and we were going to move to New York together. And, you know, we weren't married at the time. That was kind of an issue you had to kind of work through with your parents. But ultimately, I remember my mother saying... Oh, thank God you're not moving to New York by yourself. Carl's going to be with you, right? Yes. You know, so that somehow comforted her. And then there was something kind of mysterious and bizarre when she said, remind me to tell you about the time I was teaching in somewhere in Idaho and Louis Soderbergh. And then it kind of trailed off and I went, ooh. (laughs) My mom didn't have her first child till she was 38. She had my older sister. She had me when she was 40 and she had my little sister when she was 45. And that was kind of unusual back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And there were people that looked down on her, you know, socially for having had children so late. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she'd be at the grade school concert and somebody would mention her granddaughter and it was not her granddaughter. Yeah. But on the other hand, I had this adult woman as my mother who'd had a life experience and I, I will treasure that always. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was great. 
So we moved to New York and we had met a friend. Part of our raising money was we both, Carl got cast in this show at a dinner theater. Dinner theater was big in the seventies in Kansas city. And I just moved down to Kansas city with him and I was going to find a job. And then the girl that played the lead in this stupid, stupid musical kind of cowboy musical. I can't even remember the name of it. I've tried to block it out. <laughs> but you know, it's a saloon and there's a Tess Pure Heart kind of character and there's a saloon girl and the Tess Pure Heart character dropped out of the show and in desperation they offered it to me. This is a soprano part. This is the pretty girl. You know, this is the stuff I don't know how to do and I'm, you know, in a nightmare. But it was money. And so we did it. And after that, we had met a woman who played the saloon girl in this production. And she lived in New York and she was going to go off on a gig and her apartment was going to be available for a while. So we had a month in her apartment to find a place, found a place right across the hall from her. And we lived on 18th and 8th Avenue in Manhattan. And we started trying to be actors in New York. And we got jobs in a market research company. And once again, Carl and I were working together every day, living together and trying to be actors. At the time, there was a a lot of, there was an audition that I went to for a showcase of You Can't Take It With You. And there were African-American women that refused to audition for roles like Reba in You Can't Take It With You because they felt like the only roles that were available to them were the servant, the maid. And this was another one of those. And it's a George S. Kaufman play that was written back in the 30s. It's a comedy. It, but it was, it was a sticking point at mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. And I was cast as Reba. And I think only because I was being asked to read the part. And um, there's some line that Reba says that references her race. And I can't remember what it is. And it, it isn't anything that anybody would feel great about saying on stage right now. Mm-hmm. And I got to it and I said, I'm sure glad I'm low rent, aren't you? Instead of what the line was about. Right. And I got cast and it was a great lesson is in just because you're in a show in New York doesn't mean it's the best thing ever. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And we got to see a lot of theater. We could get away with second acting shows on Broadway. You'd go up at intermission in the summertime or in the spring when the weather was nice and you'd stand around, smoke cigarettes with everybody. And then you'd just go back in (laughs) and you'd sit down and you'd see the second act. And we saw the second act of amazing shows for free. (laughs) Sure. I can't believe I'm telling that because people probably still do it. (laughs) That's uh, amazing. I never would have thought of that. Yeah, it was called second acting. Sure. That makes sense. (laughs) It's what the people with no money would do. Yeah. Yeah. Dudley Riggs, uh, Dudley Moore and Peter Cook and Dudley Moore had a show, a comedy show. I can't remember the name of it, but we went back to the second act of that show. Oh, I don't know how many times. <laughs> Frank Langella was doing Dracula on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And at the time, young Frank Langella looked a lot like Carl. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we kept trying to get him close to being a an auditioner or somebody who could understudy or, you know, it never worked, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And we, we stayed for maybe two years. I have a lot of friends that stayed in New York a long time 
And I think that's a big part of it. Opportunities would come my way that would take me out of the city. Mm. And I took them. And uh, we went back to New York again after we had done some shows at the firehouse, Carl and I, and we got our equity cards and things went a little better. You know, when you had an equity card, you could get into other auditions and Mm -hmm. I did an off-Broadway show. And, but then we had a friend who was now working for Turner Broadcasting who made a phone call and asked if I would come kind of get some things in the can for this upcoming children's show on this new Turner broadcasting system. And they had hired this woman, but she wouldn't be available for a few months. And could I come? And they, you know, they needed to get sponsors. They needed to get advertising. So I went down for two weeks and played around with my friend who'd been cast as one of the, one of the humans on this children's show. And uh, after two weeks, this dear woman named Mary Frazier well, there's, there's the woman in my life who was key. She said, you know, I, I don't think I want this woman from the Howdy Doody show in Boston. I think I want you. And so we started talking and she said, yeah, I'm still looking for a writer. I really need a writer. And I go over into the corner and I find a phone and I call Carl and I said, Carl, you're a writer. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to promote you as someone who might be right for this job to write for this new children's show on Turner Superstation, WTBS Atlanta. And so Carl gets on the phone with Mary Frazier and talks to her. And suddenly we're both moving to Atlanta. We've been given a salary. I never worked for a salary in my life. It had insurance. They give us some money to move down there. We moved into a nice apartment in Midtown Atlanta and we started working at this amazing place where right next to us was a whole group of people. And their job was to create this variety show starring this sort of local guy who was funny. And in the same production office was Jan Hooks, Uh. Bonnie Turner, Terry Turner. Bonnie and Terry wrote Third Rock from the Sun. They created the Coneheads. They created Wayne's World. And they had been in a comedy group in Atlanta and they had gotten hired. And so we all became friends with these kind of nutty performer, writer people. I love Jan Hooks. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Such yeah. a loss. Such a loss. And those brilliant performances she did later on, um, what's the Tina Fey television show with a television station? Yeah. And, and it's named for the big NBC building. Third, Third Rock. Third I want no, to say th- rock, 30 rock, 30 rock. Yeah. 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 And Jan hooks played Alec Baldwin's mother. Oh, Oh my God. Yeah. She was brilliant. Yeah. She was brilliant. And she was just as funny when she was 21 years old. I bet. God, I loved her on Saturday night live. Sweeney she was one of sister. my favorites. Yeah. She uh, was the, amazing. The Sweeney sister. <laughs> oh my God. So how long were you in Atlanta? We were in Atlanta for three years, but we had been in Atlanta before that. Any place we moved to, Dana, it seemed like we would move to New York and then that wouldn't work out. And then we'd move back and we would move to Atlanta. The first time we moved to Atlanta, we followed that same Svengali, wonderful man, David Bell, to Atlanta, where he had a dinner theater gig and we were going to be in that theater. And it was doing much better than the other dinner theater. And it was one of those unique ones that had a full orchestra and all they did was big musicals. And it was kind of a a high class kind of meal situation 
the food was really well considered and, and, and lovely. And if you had a small part in the musical, you waited tables and got extra money that way. If you were playing Golda in Fiddler or you were playing, you know, a lead role in one of the shows, then you didn't have to wait tables. You got a bigger salary. And I got to play Golda in, um, in Fiddler on the Roof with Larry Shue. Oh. Larry Shue wrote The Foreigner. He Mm -hmm. wrote um, The Nerd. He died tragically in a plane crash um, when he was on Broadway doing The Mystery of Edwin Drood. But he was a, a brilliant actor. He was, he was a chameleon of an actor. And, and it was, and I, I played, um, oh, who's the woman? Ernestina Money in, um, in Hello, Dolly. Mm. She's the one that kind of Dolly kind of sneaks in to date. I can't remember how it works, but I ended up being in the Harmonia Gardens behind the curtain with Larry Shue waiting through the whole number, Hello, Dolly. And we would play hangman and we would goof around and. Oh my God, he was great. And he went from playing Horace Vandegilder in Dolly to playing Tevye in Fiddler. And at first, Tevye seemed a lot like Horace. <laughs> and then Tevye became this miraculous milkman from the shtetl of, you know, mm-hmm. Russia. It was, he was, he was something special. I was fortunate to get to kind of be in his wake. And he was always so kind to everybody and just thought of himself as just another member of the cast. You know, Mm -hmm. there are people here like that, Mm -hmm. that I respect so much Mm -hmm. that you just, you just really look for those opportunities to be around them as a director or as a a fellow actor or somebody you're directing. It's really fun. So when you were there the second time then is when, when you did the children's. Right. We had a children's show called Superstation Fun Time. We had all these great ideas for the name of our show. Of course, everything comes down from Ted Turner at the time. But I don't know that he would have remembered us. We met him briefly. Mm -hmm. He lived on the third floor of this huge broadcasting corporation. And we were down in the production offices and in the studio all the time and going out on on shoots. and, And we would be in production you know, shooting things with puppets, going out to places in Atlanta and shooting, you know, vignettes and clips and things like that. But then we'd go out of production. And so in order to keep your job, you had to find yourself a way to be useful at the television station when you weren't in production for the show. It would shut down and it would play like reruns for a while and then it would start up again in production. So I learned how to operate the Chiron generator, which was the thing that puts the words up on the screen. And I, I, I learned how, and this is not easy for me because I'm not a sports person, but I learned how to do the stats in a basketball game for the Atlanta team. And so when the TBS truck would go out to watch the game, I'd be in the truck pulling all the stats for the players and keeping the score. And I forgot every single thing I know about basketball as soon as I walked away from that job, (laughs) but I was really fast and I was really good and they requested me sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. But that started my love of technical things. Okay. I don't know much about computers. I know enough to get in trouble, but I love stuff. I love devices. I love software. I, I, I have a affinity for that in a way. So when you were doing the children's shows, 
were you just a performer or were you, uh, because I know you, we had kind of groomed Carl to write, but right. did you write as well? And did you direct, no. did Carl direct no, or no. was it all? No, we had floor directors okay. and we had our producer, Mary, that was sort oh, of sure. judging the content and giving us ideas for new things and giving us ideas for locations to go to. And there was this great Atlanta costume company. And we had this budget. I mean, we could spend money. Mm -hmm. And so we developed these characters that would keep coming back. What it was, Dana, was it was about an hour and a half of cartoons and films. And we started it and ended it and came in between every one of these things with little kind of not Sesame Street, but kind of vignettes. Sure. And so they could vary. They could, you know, they could have a little lesson in them about cheating or mm. about what can a girl do and what can a girl not do. But they also could do with um, like there were three of us on the show. My friend Jerry, who got me down there in the first place, Jerry Homan, still one of my dearest friends and a fellow named Ron Kirk. And we were the hosts of the show and our, our environment was an attic. And we could find things in the attic and there were puppets that we could interact with in the attic that were created by this great puppeteer in Atlanta. And um, so through the help of the costume company, we created these characters that were two potted plants in a window and they were common and Lloyd and they would talk about confusing things about the English language like night, K-N-I-G-H-T, and night, N-I-G-H-T. And, and we were just foolish. And, and Carl wrote very cleverly for us. And, you know, he got to know kind of how to write for those characters. And then there were just a few, you know, we were also corpuscles in the body. We had little corpuscle outfits. <laughs> One time we stole our potted plant costumes and we went over to this swanky hotel in Midtown Atlanta that was having these tea dances that were fabulous with these big bands and people would come and dress up and go to these dances and they would start at like five o'clock, you know, so they were, that's why they called them tea dances, I guess. But there was a, there was a Halloween one and there was going to be a costume contest. And so we went dressed as the potted plants <laughs> and we did a solo dance to it ain't easy being green <laughs> and we won, but there were three of us. There was Carl and me and our friend Jerry, and we won the big prize, which was supposed to be dinner for two at this really beautiful restaurant in this hotel and a weekend in a room in this hotel. And that wasn't going to fly. <laughs> For the three of us. So um, they just said, why don't we g give you all a big dinner? And, and so we went home and we got out of our plant suits and we went to dinner and it was fantastic. <laughs> and I don't know that the station ever knew that we took the costumes, but that's great. Yeah, it was fun. That's great. It was fun. So where did you go after Atlanta? After Atlanta. So Ben Beck was born in Atlanta. Okay. Because we had insurance. Yeah. And we thought if we're ever going to do this, this is the time, Yeah. you know, and that was a great experience. I loved being a pregnant person. Ben was born at Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. And about the time I learned that I was pregnant, I also learned that my mother had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So as Ben, ben was born in Atlanta and about four months into that, the experience of performing on a children's show was sort of beginning to show what makes it hard. Because you create material 
and you try to put it together as quickly as you can and you put it on video and then you have to move on to the next thing and you have to start over and you have to keep writing and you have to keep producing. And that thing that we had all grown up with, which was here's this text that this playwright has really struggled over and worked over and perfected. And now you have this much time for you to work on it and develop it and create a set and, and create a production around it and put it on the stage for a period of time. We miss that. Mm-hmm. And things were getting a little political and difficult at the station, I have to say. So we had an opportunity. Charles at one point had called Carl during the time that I was pregnant and asked him to come direct one of the shows for the Nebraska theater caravan. Now, how did, how did the two of them know each other? Or did you, I mean, you would have known him as well. So how did you guys connect up with Charles Jones? Right. We did the caravan as actors. And that would have been. So the second time I was in Atlanta when Ben is born, that's like 1980, 81, 82. Okay. We came back from New York. No. Hmm, How does this go? I don't remember. (laughs) We, we were asked we were in Atlanta. Oh, in 1978, you moved to Omaha and hired as members of the Nebraska Theater Caravan Thank Acting you. Company. You're welcome. Thank you, Dana. Yeah. Carolyn Rutherford came to Atlanta. So that was before your second move to New York City. That's right. Carolyn Rutherford came to Atlanta to see Carl, who was at the, um, oh, it's the big Lort Theater in Atlanta. And I'm not going to think of the name of it, but he was in this Sondheim review uh, where he was the narrator. So I'm not going to remember, but she came to see him at this really great theater. He'd gotten this great gig. And of course, Charles knew me kind of. He had seen me long ago in the rep. There was a bicentennial in Nebraska for what was it? There's a bicentennial in the, in the United States. Right. And the way that Nebraska celebrated it was to have this Chautauqua tour. Like in the old days when politicians and artists would tour on by train all around the state and bring culture into all parts of the state. And so we were on a Chautauqua tour with a production that had been written by this Svengali wonderful man friend, David Bell. He wrote this musical about a woman who is born in Nebraska and is doing everything she can to figure out how to get out of there. And never leaves. And it's the story of her life until she dies in her 70s. And it's told under the confines of musical events. So every decade is told in a different musical style. So when this woman is hitting the 30s and it's the depression and the crops are dying and they're having trouble on the farm, there's a dance marathon going on in the musical world. I know this is hard to follow, but it was a great story about Nebraska and what Nebraska means to people. And it was a very popular thing. And Charles had just come to the playhouse and a, and a tornado had blown the roof off of the, off of the building and all of his plans for his beginnings there as this new artistic director were flying out the window with, you know, debris. And I think the first show they did after that was outside They did a Godspell outside. I may be telling this wrong, but Charles was depressed. This is the story I heard afterwards. And his friends convinced him to let's get out of here. Let's go meet the Chautauqua in Norfolk, Nebraska. 
And so Charles, unbeknownst to me, came to Norfolk, sat in a tent to watch the show in a torrential rain. And you know how tents are, like where the pole goes up, there's a big hole in the tent for the pole to go through. So it's raining in sections on the stage. And I remember coming out, I didn't know anything about Charles being there, but I just came out. I'm like young in the beginning and I, and I'm running and I slide and I flip on my back and I'm laying on the floor and you heard the whole audience go, (gasps) you know, and I can remember the man playing my father, Doug Brissy, great actor, leaning down and looking at me like, are you okay? And I thought, if I just close my eyes, we can all go home. (laughs) And we don't have to do this in the rain, but he looked so desperate. I got up and, uh, we did the show and I got a letter from Charles after that, telling me that he was starting something called the Nebraska theater caravan. And he, and he wondered if I might be interested and I didn't know Charles. And I was so full of myself. Sometimes I was such an ass and I thought I'm going to New York. Why would I want to stay here and do this? You know, goodbye. And I didn't. I didn't, I don't even remember Dana, if I answered his letter. I mean, that's the idiot I was, but he remembered me and I sent in an audition tape to the caravan and Carl did too. And Carolyn came out to see Carl because she didn't know him, met me. This was, this was really good for me. Carl had been at this beautiful play, this wonderful show. Carolyn came to see it and they both came to talk to me where I was waiting tables. Yeah, that was good. But she hired us. And so we were glad to be going back and doing, you know, and, and doing theater again and the caravan, probably just as much as doing any of the repertory at the, at University of Nebraska Lincoln. Being in the caravan, you just learn to do a show at any time, anywhere. You just, you know, we would, I think I heard Cork talking about this when he spoke with you. You know, you'd get up early in the morning, you'd go to some school, you'd set up your set, you'd do your show, you'd tear it down, you'd go to another school, you might do a workshop, you do a show, you do a workshop, then you tear it down or you stay there and you take the set away and you put up the set for the musical and the community comes in and pays tickets and maybe you got dinner before and you do the show and maybe you get to go to a hotel and sleep or maybe you drive to the next town and at eight o'clock you're doing a show in some grade school, nine o'clock. It was, it was great. And Bill Kirk was one of the directors and he directed me in Twelfth Night. He was, I miss Bill Kirk. He, uh, he, he was, uh, he worked at the University of Nebraska for a while as a teacher and a director. And then he, he worked with Nancy Duncan at the Children's Theater at back when it was the Emmy Gifford. He was a great director and teacher. He had a really gentle way of, of talking to actors and making you think that you were coming up with things and you were, that were really coming from you. He taught me a lot. And, and this man I speak of with such reverence, David Bell, he taught me that too. I never do well under direction of somebody who, you know, there was a period of time when people were going to university for theater programs and it was a big deal to tear people down. And just make them feel like they're nothing and then sort of build them back up. And I never thrived in that environment. I always did better when everybody just somehow I just felt like I could do anything. They just kind of opened the doors and said, you know, you can do this. Try this. Yeah. 
And so I think a little bit of my own thing that I try to do when I work with actors as a director is to, is to just kind of fill the room with possibility and love. And, you know, because I I don't know how people can create without feeling so safe, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I think you have to have that because otherwise we put ourselves as actors and even as creatives as directors and there has to be such trust there because we're we're all so vulnerable you know am i doing the right thing right just you know and and some of that is the i think some of it is just as performers and i get this as a director myself is different levels of stress of as an actor you know is my performance going to match the level of the people that I'm on stage with right. so that everything is elevated so that right. we put on a good production for the theater that has, you know, that has entrusted us with this production. Right. And then as a director, it's, you know, am I leading these people who are trusting to me and looking for me to lead them? Mm-hmm. Am I taking them down the, you know, down the right path? I know. Right. You know, that feeling never goes away. It doesn't. Yeah. And it's, it's always one of those things that I always like to say for me anyway, I always like to say, if, you know, if you enjoy what I do on stage, thank the director. Right. And when I direct, I'm like, if you enjoy what you see on stage, thank the actors. (laughs) And if you don't like what you, what you see on stage, blame blame the director. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I say that too. Carl Beck and I always used to say, okay, this is the show everybody's going to find out. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. <laughs> you know, you, yeah. and that feeling, I have that feeling to some degree with everything I do. Yeah. You know, there's that wonderful song in title of show, the vampire song. Do you know what I'm talking about? I've only seen the show once. So okay. I don't know it well enough. The ly- they're about the demons that sit inside of you and say, you aren't good at this. This right. is not in your wheelhouse. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah. yeah those voices. Yeah. 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 Good I think it's called die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good to know we all have them. That's right. Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, A stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's theater talking.